This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter and the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome in. Appreciate all of you listening to us. I am Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses. I believe this is number 45 or 46 of these conversations. Been having them for a few years. Off and on, wanted to get the Clay and Buck show up and running. So now that we're officially uh, underway there and feel comfortable, I can start some of these long-form conversations again. And today's guest is Seth Dillon. He is with the Babylon Bee, and we're going to get into that here momentarily. Last week, we talked with Auburn men's basketball coach Bruce Pearl. If you haven't heard that yet, I think that will be an incredibly enjoyable conversation for you guys to check out. We bring in Seth now. Seth is in the middle of a battle with Twitter, which we are going to eventually work our way up to, where the Babylon Bee account has been locked over a refusal to delete a uh, to delete a tweet mocking uh, many of the issues that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, uh, but this one in particular with uh, transgender-related issues. We'll get to that eventually, but let's start here. First of all, thanks for being on, Seth. Secondly, how in the world have you found yourself doing what you do now? So I'm going to start with the most basic question. Where did you grow up? Would you ever have thought, hey, I'm going to end up as a satirist, basically, on the internet? Uh, what's your background? Uh, great question. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Clay. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, my background, I, I grew up uh, somewhat appropriately to be running a, um, you know, like a Christian conservative satire site. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. Um, I was born in D.C., of all places, but I bounced around all over the place. When people ask what my hometown is, I don't even know how to answer that, because we, we lived in Maryland and Jersey and Texas and South Florida, so I was kind of moving around a little bit. I don't really have, like, a hometown. Um, but, you know, my my background, my early background, I, I love to read. Um, my parents taught me how to think uh, critically, and they taught me values as well. And I and as I came into, like, young adulthood, young adulthood I cared very much about um, you know, issues of importance, you know, cultural issues and, uh, and, and morals and values, uh, and making sure that, you know, whatever, 
whatever I was doing in terms of like supporting and, and politics reflected my, my values and my worldview. Um, and so I had a good, I think, good foundation under me because of my parents. So I'm thankful to, to them for that. But when it comes to like the satire and the humor stuff, I mean, I got into a little bit of trouble in college writing some satire uh, that I sent, I distributed throughout the school. Um, I, I was able to download the whole email list and like, and blast out an email to the staff and faculty and all the students. And, and it was making fun of the school and some professors. And it was, uh, it, it wasn't super lighthearted. Some of it was even mean spirited. I would say there was a little bit of an edge to it. And, uh, and it got me in a, in a bit of trouble with the, with the school's administration. And I almost got kicked out of college. So I had, I had an early start when it came to uh, getting in trouble with satire and humor. Um, but I didn't, I didn't start a career doing that because I, I, you know, there's not really many ways to make money doing that. And there certainly weren't back then for me. So I got into the internet marketing world and, and learned how to do, uh, uh, search marketing, SEO, all of that stuff. Um, I worked for some agencies doing that. It wasn't until about 2012 that I struck out on my own as an entrepreneur and, uh, and the Babylon Bee fell into my lap in 2018, uh, when I was looking to kind of diversify into the media space and the Babylon Bee was taking off like a rocket and, uh, and I wanted to help it grow. Um, but the guy who was running it, Adam Ford, he started it in 2016 and he was looking to sell it. So we ended up working out a deal. Um, so long story short, that's how I got involved in it, but it was just kind of like a dream come true to see something like that come across my radar. When I saw the Babylon Bee, I thought to myself immediately, man, I wish I had thought of that. I wish I was running that site. I wish I was involved in it in some way. Um, and I initially looked at it as just an investment, like to see if I could get involved as an investor, kind of giving this thing some fuel and, uh, never thought I'd be running it, but that's how it worked out. All right. So I want to go back. Your dad is a, uh, is a preacher. What religious mm -hmm. faith did you grow up in? What was he a minister? What church affiliation? So Protestant Christianity, uh, evangelical church, but not like, uh, any particular denominational affiliation. So Bible churches, community churches, stuff like that. So I grew up in Nashville, as most people who are listening here know. Um, and I grew up going to Baptist church as a kid, uh, as a lot of people who grow up in the South do. Uh, and so I experienced a lot of different preachers and a lot of different preacher sons and daughters. And it's a cliche that they often have issues. Did you feel <laughs> any particular pressure or any particular or find that you had any particular issues as a preacher's son? Do you have brothers and sisters? Like what was your experience like in that respect, especially since you said you grew up in so many different states? Uh, that's not uncommon for those jobs either because a, a preacher mm -hmm. might constantly be relocating and moving around to find different uh, mm -hmm. religious groups to be uh, to be preaching to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think kind of a, a common thing that happens is you have really conservative households, a lot of really strict rules. Um, kids end up, you know, becoming really wanting to rebel and, and break away from all that. I, I grew up having a tremendous amount of respect for my parents and, uh, and I was in a very loving home. And so I never really felt any um, strong inclination to like lash out against them or defy them. Um, you know, I never, I never really struggled with that and never really felt like, uh, I was jaded because of, you know, things that the things that I'd seen behind the scenes in the church or, you know, that, that rocked my faith to its core or anything like that. You know, there was obviously a lot of drama that goes on in churches and a lot of political stuff that happens behind the scenes and a lot of backstabbing and, uh, and very unchristian behavior that you end up seeing. Um, but, you know, I think my, my parents really, 
they handled it all with a lot of grace and, uh, and they really just loved on people. Um, and you know, my, my dad's job being a pastor is like a 24 seven job. So, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with stuff in the church, you're pre- preparing for your sermon, but then you're doing hospital visits and, and funerals and weddings and all kinds of stuff, just 24 seven, um, serving and ministering to other people. So I, I never had anything but tremendous respect for them. Um, and, and, you know, I think, my, I think my faith only grew stronger as a result of, of my, my upbringing in the church. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I guess I might be one of the exceptions. I don't know. I have no idea what percentage of pastors' kids t- turn out uh, normal versus, uh, you know, going the other way. So was there ever, when you were a kid, a move where you were just crushed that you had to leave a particular community or a particular state? Was there a place that you loved as a kid? Was one of those moves more traumatic or difficult for you than others? Um, I do remember I, I grew up in Maryland. I was in, um, we were, we lived in Carroll County, Maryland. My dad pastored a little church called Uniontown Bible Church. And it's a really small town and, uh, small church and, but very close family. The church was like family to us. And, uh, and so uh, those were like my kindergarten years, first, second grade. I was a little kid. And I remember when we left there, everybody was really sad and devastated that we were leaving. And I was sad myself because I felt like we were leaving our family. But I was a little kid. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't developed, like, lifelong relationships with anyone yet at that point. But um, that sticks out to me most in my memory as being one of those times when I was really sad. I guess as I got a little older, we moved around, you know, four years later, we moved again. Five years later, moved again. I kind of, I guess I got a little accustomed to it. I think it was harder on my sister. You know, she, would, she had boyfriends, and she was a little older than me. You know, she was having to break up with boyfriends when we moved. That was devastating for her. But um, for me, I kind of got used to it. And I, I found it exciting going to a new place, meeting new people. Um, it was just that one initial move when I was younger, the first one that I remember where I felt like we were, you know, leaving our home. Where did you go to college? You mentioned that you got in trouble for what you sent out to the uh, the school listserv. Uh, where did you go to school? <laughs> I went to Palm Beach Atlantic University. Uh, I was there from 2000 to 2004. I studied uh, I studied business management while I was there. I, I minored in English, and um, and I recently actually got canceled from speaking there. That's another story. But uh, um, I guess that's going on two years now. I was supposed to go speak at the chapel, and a Twitter mob formed um, to assemble to to uh, to uh, to say that to, to the administration that they shouldn't have someone like me on their campus. You know, I'm full of full of hatred and all this stuff. Um, so you know, I ended up. Uh, I ended up getting uh, denied from speaking in the chapel because that's a sacred place. Can you believe that? I actually attended that school. <laughs> I've donated. This money is. To that. I've never even. I've never even heard of the school. Palm Beach Atlantic. You yeah. said. Yeah. What Palm is Palm Beach, Beach Atlantic University. known for? Uh, beautiful women, the beach. I don't know. <laughs> no. I Palm mean, Beach, is it a big Palm school? Like, I mean, I don't. No. I, I know thanks to the sports context, so I can't. Even, like, how many people would go there roughly? A few thousand. So, okay. um, yeah, it's not, they're not, they're not on the map when it comes to like, uh, sports. Um, so, you know, they're not, they're not a highly competitive, uh, athletic department. Um, but they're a, they're a Christian school. It's a, pri- a private Christian university. Um, so, you know, you have a lot of, there's a big draw to come down to Florida, be, be neither near the beach. And so, you know, as an alternative to some of the other Christian universities that are not in awesome locations, I think Palm Beach Atlantic has a, has a great draw for that. Um, they do have some good programs there, though, and and uh, I recently just I actually invested in and and made a large large uh, uh, donation to their new uh, philosophy of, of religion um, 
uh, program that they launch a master's in philosophy of religion. I have a, a strong interest in like apologetics and, and philosophy and, and arguing for the faith uh, using reason. Uh, and so they're, they're launching a program with someone I really respect. Paul Copan is, is running that program. And, uh, and I think it's going to be very fruitful, you know, training up a, a younger generation of, of Christians who can actually defend intellectually their beliefs. Um, so um, that's really cool that they're getting into that. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the natural hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. So that you made a large donation to the school and they still canceled your speech? Yeah, the next year, yeah. So, I mean, wh- I, it seems to me that the, the uh, a religious school would not necessarily be offended by you, particularly because you're an alum. Were you surprised that they that they decided to try to cancel your speech? Yes and no. I mean, you don't really see much backbone in institutions these days. The uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You get these Twitter mobs that form, and they're the really loud, really obnoxious, really angry people that everybody wants to appease. And I think the the administration found themselves in a position where. You know, they didn't want to have an, uh, they didn't want to have an event on their campus that was attracting any media attention with protests or anything like that. So they just wanted to appease the mob and do what the mob wanted and say, OK, we're not going to have him in the chapel if you guys don't think that's appropriate. Um, instead of coming and standing by me and saying there's nothing wrong with this guy, he attended this school, his, he, he doesn't have. Um, you know, terrible values. He doesn't hate people. We stand by him. We want him to speak here. No one, ha- they didn't have my back like that or, or stand up these kids. And, and the thing that to me, it was, it's crazy. It's like, is the administration running the school or are these angry students running the school? It's the same thing with Disney. Is the CEO really in charge? And you know, it doesn't yeah. really seem that way. It seems like the, uh, the tail is wagging the dog. 
There's no doubt. Uh, we're talking to Seth Dillon. He is the he runs the Babylon Bee. I'll ask him his official title uh, since 2018, I believe. Uh, and I am Clay Travis. This is wins and losses. All right. So you go to college. I'm actually curious about this. You said you were there 2000 to 2004. Do you remember the first time yeah. you ever got on the internet? You're around my age, so you probably do. Do you remember like the first time you got on the internet and what you did? When you got on there, was it with AOL, like those discs? What What do you remember about the internet as a kid growing up? Man, wasn't it the rich kids that had AOL? I don't even know if I had AOL. I think we had like a like Net Zero or something like that. I, I didn't have had... so so yeah. I mean, to answer your question, by the way, I didn't even have the internet at my house. So when I I'm a little oh, really? bit older than you, I'm 97 to 2001 okay. was the time I was at George Washington. But when I went away to college. The first time I ever got an email address was when I got to college. And we didn't have, to my knowledge, the internet at our house. Now, when I came back home in the summers, by that point, we had the internet. But I didn't have the internet at home. Uh, my my uncle next door had prod- prodigy dial-up internet. But I never oh, yeah. had the internet at my house. So so you do you remember the first time? I remember the first time I got I on. Do, I was yeah. with my friend uh, Greg Schamberg. Uh, who I don't even know where Greg lives now, but um, he had AOL, those free discs that they sent out. Remember, like you used to get yep. so many hours to get on uh, for the internet. It was dial up. And I remember he and yep. I got on. That was the very first, I was at his house. I was probably, you know, ninth or 10th grade. That was the very first time I ever got on the internet. You had to get like a CD-ROM add-on for your computer. To yeah, that's that right. Disc in if, you didn't, if you didn't already have one. Yeah, um, I was... Uh, I remember my, my granddad uh, on my mom's side was really into like playing bridge and stuff on the internet. And so, and that was like a, a, a big thing early on. And, and he was really excited about being able to set us, set us up on the internet so that he could chat with us remotely. He lived in Virginia. And, uh, and so I, I, he helped us get on the internet. We got like ICQ and AOL instant messenger and started chatting with friends. I think I was probably 14 or 15 around that time when we first, first started. Did you online. recognize, Hey, college, yeah, but did you reckon by the time you get to college, two thousand two thousand four? Did you recognize even as a young kid? Oh, this internet thing is going to be big. Or like I remember getting my email address at GW freshman year, and I remember the guy saying, "Hey, this is going to be one of your favorite things that you ever have in the inter- you know in college. This is going to be a big deal." And I remember kind of rolling my eyes, like, "Yeah, whatever." And then almost immediately being like, oh, this is kind of amazing to be able to email with everybody and to be able to have an email address. Again, I was eighteen before I had an email address. Did you think back then, oh, yeah. oh, this is going to be a big deal? In some ways, I mean, we had uh, we had all kinds of ideas. Um, you know, my brother and I, we, we secured PlayStation2.com before PlayStation oh, 2 wow. had been announced. And, uh, and so we were playing around doing stuff like that, like buying domains and stuff. So wait, and, what uh, happened and, with PlayStation2.com? Did you end up selling it or did they like that, that was called squatting oh, they, back in the day, right? Yeah, like you yeah, would yeah. just they try to think about the web exactly. addresses. Oh yeah, that started becoming. That was before it was even like a, a super popular thing. I guess I, I don't know. I mean, no one had thought of that one yet. And uh, and Sony sent us a letter uh, demanding that we release it to them. And my parents freaked out and made us do it. And so we didn't even get any money for it. <laughs> you would have been how old when you had PlayStation Two dot com? I don't even. I remember. I a teenager somewhere. I don't know. Fourteen, fifteen, six. I'm not sure. I'm not and so sure. this letter Whenever, just arrives at your house. Your parents open it up, and they're like, "I can imagine being a parent and being like pretty upset about it." Yeah, yeah. It's an official. It's on official letterhead from uh, from Sony, and uh, 
and they're sending us it's a demand letter basically it was a demand letter saying that they had the rights to that domain um you know it was very aggressive in its language and so they were they didn't have any money for like a legal battle or anything and they thought we were going to get in trouble for for, yeah. for squatting on it so they didn't understand that you know if we bought it it was ours uh but <laughs> yeah they uh they 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 were were pretty pretty serious about making sure that we did whatever we could to get Sony off our backs there. So when you're at college in 2000 to 2004, obviously you're at a religious school. Did you think to yeah. yourself, Hey, I'm going to have some sort of life. I'm going to, you, you mentioned you got into SEO. How did that happen? So you graduate in 2004 from Palm beach Atlantic and you yeah. go and take what job? Um, my first job, well, actually my first job before I, uh, before I got into like the internet marketing stuff directly with like agencies was at enterprise rent a car. I mean, I, I just didn't even know where I was going to work and they were hiring. So, I so you were 22 and you work at enterprise. What, where was the enterprise yeah. location in Palm beach, West Palm beach, West Palm beach, Florida. Was it a and good location hot. for enterprise or was it like a, cause you know, there's big differences between where you could be That's located, really right? I bet you know really way better than me. No, not a great neighborhood. It was in a trailer. It wasn't even a structure, like an actual building. It was a it was a trailer on stilts, and oh, no. uh, tiny little trailer, uh, dingy little office, flickering lights, dirty carpet, and you know you're out there washing cars, wearing a shirt and tie and slacks in the Florida heat. It's just it was it was pretty rough. But I, I met my wife there. My wife got in a car accident, needed a rental, comes into the office. I rent her car. Later on that evening, she calls the office and asks me out to dinner. So I mean, how old? Wait, so how old was your wife when she came in? How old? How old? You were twenty two. She was how old? I was twenty one. I graduated a year early, so I was twenty one. She was nineteen. All right. So, what percentage of people that came into your enterprise office were dateable? Like what? Like (laughs) one in forty? One in fifty? Like it's going to be a pretty low percentage, I would think. Especially again, because you're not at the good enterprise. I always say, like when I wrote my first book. I got sent to a bunch of not even the good Walmarts to do book signings. And by the way, Walmart, not an ideal place to do a book signing. But when you're not even at the good Walmart in a town, it's a much better, it's a much worse uh, dynamic. Trust me. I would say a very small percentage, more like one in a hundred. I don't know. It was not, it was not a frequent thing. So when she, when she came in, it was like, she grabbed everybody's attention. You know, this other young guy that I was working with was hitting on her. He tried to get her number because he was going out with some friends later and he wanted to see if she and her friends wanted to join him. And she blew him off and and took off. And then when she called back and and asked for me, he was like, he was so upset. It was pretty, it was pretty hysterical. So what did you guys do uh, on the first date after you met at the car rental place? Um, we went out to, we went out to dinner that night. We actually went out that night. She asked me out that night. I said, yes. So we, we went to dinner that, that first day that we met. Um, where did you go to dinner though? I think it was this restaurant called Bruzy. Bruzy. It's not even open anymore. It was in, uh, it was in a city place in, in West Palm, which it's not even called city place anymore. This is, you know, this is how old we are. The places that we used to go and hang out are all closed and renamed now. So, um, yeah, those, those things don't even exist anymore, but but yeah, I mean that was my that was my first job though, my first job like out of school. I was 21. Um, I ended up getting into uh, I ended up getting into like that internet marketing scene because while I was in college, I had a business online. I actually started, you know, the internet always interested me. It always interested me. So I, I knew there were ways to make money online, selling stuff on eBay or Craigslist or or you know just creating a website and finding some kind of product or service that you can offer. And and while I was in school, I was doing this thing where I had 
all these like English as a second language students that were struggling to to write properly in English. I was doing editing work for them on the side and helping them with their grammar, everything. I wasn't writing their papers for them, but I was helping edit their papers and like fix up their English. So it's geared completely towards ESL students. And I started a whole business doing that. And so I was connecting editors like English, uh, English speaking and writing editors with English as second language students to help them with their English and help them get better grades. And so I had a website that I was marketing for that when I was in school. And then uh, that's kind of how I learned the ins and outs of like paid search marketing on Google and, and Yahoo. Um, and, you know, so I had experience with that before there were even degrees for that, that you could, that you could get from the university. And so when I, when I started applying for jobs, doing that at these agencies that do, that do search marketing, they, they, once they knew that I had some experience, they're like, oh, wait, you've already done this on your own. You're hired. So it was very so, easy to get a job. When I, when I had... So you basically taught but, yourself internet marketing based on having a business like that. What kind of dollar yes. for dollar return did you get back in those days with Google search results? Oh man, I mean clicks were pretty cheap early on. Yeah. Um you know, I was able to I was the middleman, right? So I was linking editors together with like students basically. And so I would take like a percentage and pay the editors, you know, I'd pay the editors and I would take some off the top. And so I was in the middle on that. I was I made like I made like 30 or 40,000 dollars the first year I was doing that. I was still a college student. I was vacationing to the Bahamas, going to like a paradise island and stuff you know like i was living it up i thought i was rich i mean that's a lot of money for a college kid right i mean if you were making 30 or 40k uh and how many hours a week were you having to work to do that uh i was i was working quite a bit because you know just facilitating the whole thing i didn't have any programmers like to automate anything it was all manual communication between people and sending invoices and all this stuff so it was it was time consuming. I was working almost, you know, like almost at a full time clip, even as I was finishing school. And then when I got out of school, you know, I wanted to go get a real job and get some real world experience. But I had in my back pocket that I knew how to do the Internet marketing stuff. So that's what kind of kicked me off on that path. I started working for like some search marketing agencies, one of them in Boca called More Visibility, um, another one called Beyond ROI. Uh, and started, you know, doing that whole thing and learning the ins and outs of that. And that's fascinating because you end up with clients who are running businesses in a in a bunch of different industries. Like you could be running campaigns for people who are selling uh, Vegas show tickets or steel toe shoes or a law firm that's looking for leads or some company that organizes garages, you know. And so you learn like you learn how to run campaigns. You learn the ins and outs of how much the clicks cost and what kind of return on investment you can get in a wide variety of industries. And with that knowledge, it sets you up to be able to go out there and start your own business. You know where the opportunities are. No, that's fascinating. Was there, by the way, a straw that broke the camel's back moment uh, as it pertained to working in car rentals? Was there like a I'm done with this forever <laughs> moment for you? Uh, I don't remember if there was one specific moment. I will tell you, though, that it is pretty like soul crushing to be outside in 95 degree heat, like washing a car while wearing a suit. I mean, you're like, and then you, and then you run inside the office, the little trailer, and there's a line of people. They're all mad because there's no cars available. You know how enterprise is, right? They, they, they did a Seinfeld episode about this whole thing, but you know, you, yeah. you have a reservation and then you show up and there's no car and they're like, well, what's the point of the reservation? What does it yes. do? It's supposed to hold a car. Well, the, the enterprise model was to stay rented completely out the whole time. You wanted no cars on your lot, but then people would walk in needing a car or having reserved a car and you don't have any for them. So then you're scrambling, trying to barter with another, uh, agency to try to get a, a car from them to bring to your people and it's very stressful the phone's ringing the whole time and you got to run outside and wash another car in the heat so i was like i did that for six months i was like i got it i got it 
I got to be done with this. I I also would imagine I and I worked in retail for a while and um and so forward facing. A lot of people probably listening to us worked in uh, restaurants or whatever else. But I would imagine probably the anger level of car rental is one of the highest of all professions forward facing, right? Because nobody's ever in that good of a mood. It doesn't ever feel like you get the car that you're expecting to get. The line always takes longer than you anticipate. There's some issue with the car when you get in. You always got to worry about refueling it. Like I find the whole car rental process to be frankly pretty awful. Yeah, well, and then as a as a guy that's renting you the car, like there's pressure on you to try to sell the damage waiver, the personal injury. Yeah, of course, yeah, you know, that's a great these, point. All these upsells, you know, you want to sell them the, the, the prepaid gas, and you want to sell them the coverage, and if you don't hit certain sales metrics, you know, you 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 don't you don't excel, you don't get, you don't rank up, you don't get to be an assistant branch manager, and then a branch manager, and then an area manager. So in order to work your way up, you got to be an outstanding salesperson. So you're on top of people being miserable for all those reasons you just mentioned. You're also trying to sell them stuff. Yeah, and by the way, I'll also mention that you have kids now, right? You have two, yeah, two boys. Two, two boys, yep, eight and six. Yeah. yeah, so the only it's bad enough when you're single and you're trying to get a rental car or you're married and it's just you and your wife, but getting a car seat, first of all, to have the car seat be there, secondly, getting it installed in a rental car, all of this <laughs> is just a miserable process, right? Like it, it gets worse when you have to have the rental car for the kids and you try and reserve the car seat, and then it's not there, and then your wife blames you for that. And then I just I, I think it's becoming quite clear that I hate the rental car process, basically. I would rather Uber everywhere. Yeah, and adding to that is usually like you're getting a rental car for, for your family when you're on a trip somewhere. Maybe you're somewhere cold, and it's snowing, and you're standing outside freezing, waiting for them to get the – yeah, it just adds all those. That's exactly there. right. Um, yeah. All right, yeah. so you have this knowledge with SEO. How long do you work yeah. in sort of the SEO field? Oh, for, for several years. I mean, for probably like six, seven years, something like that. So I, I ended up uh, branching out to do that on my own too. And I had a bunch of clients and I was, I was doing pretty well with that. But you know, when you have, when you have a bunch of client accounts that you're managing, you're, it's like having a bunch of bosses, you work for each of your clients. And, um, and I was, I, for whatever reason, the way that I was wired, I was, I never really wanted to be working for somebody else. I wanted to be doing things on my own terms. Uh, working for myself. And so even though it was my own business, having clients felt like I was working for somebody else all the time. Um, I always had to do what they wanted me to do. And they were always waiting on me for something. And, and, uh, and I wanted to do things more on my term. And so I was always looking for an out from there. So at some point, I decided, you know, I'd, I'd rather just strike out on my own entirely and run my own businesses that aren't client based businesses, you know, um, things that I can, I can automate and offer services online, uh, and not have to deal with clients. And, uh, and I knew how to do that just because I'd been, I had spent so many years in the internet marketing world. So, um, you know, eventually I struck out to do that. I, my, my brother and I teamed up. He's, my brother was an engineer, uh, aeronautical engineer, uh, but had a knack for like computer programming and web development stuff. And so I told him, look, I've got some ideas. If you can build some things, I can market them and we'll see if they do well. And if they do, we quit our jobs and we'll do this full time. He said, sure. And, uh, next thing you know, we were out on our own. All right, so were you active on social media? You said you first noticed, I think, the Babylon Bee online yourself and were interested in it as a business opportunity. Were you active in any other media-based entities prior to noticing the Babylon Bee? No, I had never, and this is the thing. This is why when I was interested in investing in the Bee, 
I really just wanted to invest in it. I did not want to buy it because I didn't know the first thing about running a media site. Like I knew how to like sell products, generate leads, turn clicks into cash. You know, like I knew how to, I knew how to monetize websites, but I didn't know how to monetize like a media site. That's just like where you're not selling a product. You're just publishing articles. I didn't know the first thing about running a media site. So um, I was really just interested in investing in it and letting the guy who knows what he's doing run it and produce the content and, and manage all of that. Um, but he was more interested in selling it. In fact, he was talking to the Daily Wire at the time back in 2018, and, and they had worked out a deal, and, and, and they were about to sign on the dotted line. And then Daily Wire backed out. Uh, Facebook had changed their algorithm right around that time, and they got kind of cold feet about whether or not they wanted to be you know, running another property that was really almost entirely dependent on Facebook for traffic and everything. So when they backed out, Adam called me back and said, hey, if you're still interested, I don't, I don't want an investor. I want to sell it. So if you want to have a serious talk about buying it, you know, fly to Michigan and let's meet. And let's talk about it. So, uh, so that's when I flew up there to meet him. So, so you buy the company in 2018. Um, yep. How? What was the size of the company? How nervous were you to be buying it? Walk me through the decision by which you come to purchase the company and enter the media business. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't super expensive. It wasn't millions of dollars. So I didn't feel like I was taking a huge financial risk. Um, but I was, I was a little nervous about taking on a property that I didn't know how to manage. It was going to be a learning curve and I had a very full plate doing, you know, work running a bunch of several other online businesses. And so, um, you know, this idea that I would be taking on something that was foreign to me was a little bit nerve wracking. Um, but the upside, the exciting part about it was it was fun. It was satire. It was what I was doing when I was in college and getting in trouble. I saw the opportunity to have all kinds of fun and get in all kinds of new trouble. And he was worried about this whole fight with censorship and Facebook kicking him off for, for misinformation or whatever. They were starting to fact check around that time. And I welcomed that fight. I was like, I want to be on the front lines of that fight. That, that sounds like fun. Let him try to kick me off. You know, let's, let's take him to court. Let's fight that battle. Let's fight for free speech. So I, I saw it as this really exciting thing. And he was like, I want to pull the ripcord and get out. So um, it ended up working out. We, we, we sat down and talked. You know, we really liked each other. We got along really well. Um, and it sounded like I could really bring something to it. So, um, you know, I, I was excited about the opportunity to get involved with something that would be like really fun, you know, rather than just a business where you're selling like, I mean, we were selling all kinds of stuff. We're selling like insulated water bottles and putting sunglasses and, and iPhone bumpers and stuff like that. But that wasn't like exciting to me. It wasn't fun. I didn't feel like it was impactful and meaningful. But the B had something special. The B had, it was speaking truth to culture. It was dealing with the preservation of freedom and the restoration of sanity and, and, and all of that through humor. And that was just right up my alley. All right, I'm going to get to that in a sec. What was the craziest thing you sold that you couldn't believe there was as much demand for it? Like, in other words, if you had to go back and only sell one product, what would it be and or what surprised you the most that people were willing to buy? Uh, I don't, you know, honestly, probably probably float it like I don't know, maybe it's it's not it's not that weird of a product in in your mind, but I had no idea all the demand that there was for floating sunglasses. Did you know that was even a thing? I didn't even I didn't know even floating know sunglasses were a thing. I, this is like, so yeah, if they I fall off thought, your face, they don't sink? Yeah, they fall, Yeah, I always thought if you lose your sunglasses in the water, you lost them. They're gone. They sink to the bottom, you know? I didn't realize there was even a thing such as floating sunglasses. But yeah, I, I actually am now thinking, I didn't know they existed, but now I'm like, you know what? Floating <laughs> sunglasses does make a lot of sense. So you guys would sell tons of, of floating sunglasses? Yeah, we had a business called Waves Gear, and uh, 
And yeah, we would sell microfiber towels and water bottles, all kinds of like beach stuff. And, uh, and floating sunglasses was the top seller. Um, it was, it was, it was big on Amazon. Um, we ended up transitioning away from that and, and, uh, and, and moving on to other things, but for quite some time before there was a lot more competition, um, it's pretty, pretty profitable business. Um, how did you, by the way, get your stuff shipped? I, so the reason why I'm asking is we obviously have sold a lot of outkick gear over the years. And I, before I started selling gear, I had no idea how complicated shipping was, how expensive it was, how often things got lost, how often things went awry. People think, oh, I'm just going to sell something on the internet, and they don't really work through all of the complexities associated with it. Uh, that is pretty overwhelming, right? So uh, you have to learn. I mean, there's like so you're making it sound now. fairly simple, right? But there's actually <laughs> a lot of complexities involved in selling product on the internet. It depends on how much margin you want, how much work you want to put in. I mean, there's so many opportunities to do like drop shipping stuff. You can do yeah. print on demand stuff now. There's there's companies that have made it so easy to just like put your design on a t-shirt and they print it for you on demand and ship it off. And you have to charge quite a bit for it because it costs so much to have them do all that for you. Um, yeah. But, you know, if, you, if you're able to pass some of that cost on to the consumer, you can still make a little bit of a margin on it and you don't have to handle any of that stuff, which is pretty cool. Um, but we had a warehouse. I mean, we ran the operation out of actually, I, I, I partnered with a guy out in Utah that had a warehouse, uh, and, and rent and did some distribution and fulfillment stuff. And so, uh, we worked together on, on that whole process and he ran and he managed that whole thing. So we would, we would bring in the shipments and, and, and pallets and, and stock and store them in the warehouse. And then he would handle all the fulfillment and, and ship everything out. And so we had a system, we had a system, but but for, for the B right now, we do a lot of print-on-demand stuff. Um, we, we take advantage of a lot of that. But uh, we, are, we are transitioning now that we're doing bigger volume. We're growing. There's a lot more volume. We can make a lot more money if we actually handle a lot of the fulfillment stuff ourselves. Um, or, you know, at least not do it print-on-demand, but buy it in bulk at lower rates. All right. So I don't remember when I first became aware of the Babylon Bee. I'm obviously hyper online. That's what I have to do. I was running OutKick, so I understand the media space, developing audience, all of those different things. What surprised you the most about running a media business that you didn't anticipate before you did? And when did you start to feel, maybe the answer is you still don't, but when did you start to feel, okay, I'm comfortable, I kind of understand the business aspects associated with running a site like the Babylon Bee? Well, I mean, when I first took it over, you asked, you asked some questions earlier that I didn't even answer. Uh, yeah. I guess I got distracted with other things, but like, how big of the oper- how big was the operation? Who was yeah. involved? I mean, when I when I took it over, this was a this was a one and a half man show. I mean, it was Adam and his in one part time writer. That's it. It was two guys, and uh, and the part time guy was submitting some ideas, and Adam was running the site, and they had some Google ads on there. That was that was all they did for monetization. Um, and some, some t-shirt sales through Teespring that they were doing, uh, here and there, but it wasn't really generating a lot of revenue. Um, there wasn't really a model in place for that. So all of it was a learning curve for me. I had to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we maximize our RPM, our revenue per thousand impressions and actually turn this into a business. And then, you know, obviously hiring talent, trying to find writers and all of that. So we did, we went through a bunch of stuff. We figured out, we, we launched a store. So now we have merchandise. We started publishing books. We launched a subscription platform. All of this clay was geared towards making sure we had diversification of, of revenue sources in the event that we got deplatformed. We were working on the whole potential deplatforming problem right from the beginning. 
because we knew that if we had all our eggs in Facebook's basket to drive traffic and all our eggs in Google's basket to generate revenue, either one of them could shut us off at any time and we have to close our doors. There's nothing we can do. So we wanted to make sure that we had multiple traffic sources and multiple streams of revenue coming in just to diversify and keep the business on its feet in the event of those deplatforming events. So um, that was that was what I was trying to figure out from the beginning, and all of it was you know kind of a learning curve since I'd never I'd never run a media site before. But um, we've got we've got our feet under us now, I think, and uh, and you know the, the Twitter thing that just happened is is a big deal, but uh, it's not going to sink us because of all that effort we put into diversifying. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmental Environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the Natural Hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Okay, so one of the things that I noticed, and I testified uh, under oath about this, so this is no great surprise, was Facebook could throw off tremendous amounts of traffic. Social media could in general. But if you did something to upset the gatekeepers, almost immediately they could flip a switch and your traffic would disappear. I imagine that didn't happen very often to you in the selling the floating sunglasses business. It was pretty pretty hard, I would imagine, Maybe I'm wrong to yeah. super offend the floating sun. Gr- I, I, although I guess Amazon <laughs> could change their dynamics in terms of costs and things like that. When yeah. was the first time you realized the power of the big tech platforms in terms of their ability to allow you to have traffic or disallow you to have traffic? Um, probably the first time was when we had, you know, like a, a, even before all of the media site stuff, like we, we you know, have just having issues where, you know, Google would suspend your ads uh, for policy violation, and you got to try to figure out why and try to appeal and get back on. And you would just all of a sudden your traffic would dry up while, while you're in the middle of dealing with that. And you realize it's like you're completely at Google's mercy. You cannot drive traffic. You know, the way Google, 
Google changed everything when it came to advertising. You know, it used to be that, you know, there was this big concern where, you know, Walmart or Barnes and Noble would come into a town and all the small businesses would suffer because you had these big, you know, these big brick and mortars that offered so many products and they dominated and, and no one could, could generate any business anymore in that area. Well, the internet, to some extent, put, you know, fixed that problem or at least addressed part of that problem by making it possible to have small businesses put your ads right next to the, the big companies, the big brands and be competitive with them. You know, like we ran like, in the self-help legal filing space, we ran ads right next to LegalZoom, and people clicked on our ads just as much as they clicked on LegalZoom's ads. And so you can put your ads right there next to them. But then, but then that, that can all just go away. If, if Google decides that one of your ads violates a policy, you know, they can suspend your account, and then all of a sudden you're dead in the water, and you can't generate any traffic anymore. And that can't happen with a brick and mortar. Your, your store is still there. You know, no one's shutting your store down. So, you know, that was a dealing with issues like that make it feel all very uncertain and and always like you know you need to have you need to have multiple things going at all times because if any one thing topples you know you don't you want to you don't want to be in a situation where all your eggs are in one basket um so i learned very early on that the importance of making sure that you know you've got you've got multiple things going on so that you're not you're not uh you're not in such a precarious position um what was but the, i think what was the, the yeah with the B, with the B, you know, it's when we first started getting fact checked and we first started getting threatened with demonetization, and uh, in our platform being removed, like basically saying, "Look, we will we will demonetize or deplatform you if we feel it's necessary if you continue to share fake news." Um, you know, those kinds of threats coming from the social media. There's no alternative for a site like ours to get traffic from, especially at that time when they hadn't even created a lot of these like, uh, you know, third tier kind of social networks. So one of the challenges that you have and you've dealt with, and I'm curious how this has played out, and we're talking with Seth Dillon. He is the owner of the Babylon Bee. We are talking on wins and losses. I, of course, am Clay Travis. You're a satirical site, and you are constantly Mm. poking fun at a variety of different issues, yet many people don't seem to understand the concept of of you being a satirical site. And I know this is, by the way, not just unique to you. The Onion, back in the day, used to often be considered a serious uh, news site as well, sometimes in the stories that they were sharing. How often are you getting caught up in those kind of disputes? And do you think people use it as an excuse because of your bent? Like, there's this idea that uh, Republicans can't be funny, that a conservative site could not be funny, and you guys fly in the face of that and are pretty consistently hysterical at ridiculing many of the issues that are out there. Well, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't think much of it is honest. I think a lot of it is disingenuous. It's an effort to silence and suppress us by pretending that we're something that they know that we're not. You know, like when when the New York Times calls us a far-right misinformation site that traffics in misinformation under the guise of satire, and those are exact words, when they do that, they know what they're doing. You know, they are, in fact, using misinformation to smear us as being a source of it. And it's very deliberate. It's it's conniving. It's it's wrong. I mean, they're not they're not laboring under. They're not they're not confused about who we are and what we do. You know, it's obvious that we're actually a satirical publication. They just they just don't like the fact that we're effective. And so they find these ways, these creative ways to come after you. And so they pretend to be really bothered by it. Oh, your jokes are too believable. Too many people think that your satire is true. You must have some ill motives. You must be trying to uh, confuse people and spread disinformation, you know. 
Um, and it's, it's just absurd. I mean, when you think, when you really think about it, it's like satire needs to have an element of truth to it in order for the joke to land, in order for the joke to make sense. The point that you're making, all that satire does is exaggerate the truth to make its points. And so if you're not, if you're not closely riding on the back of the truth, your jokes aren't going to land. And this idea, this expectation that our jokes should be so divorced from reality that no one could possibly believe they were true is to say that we're supposed to be doing something other than satire altogether. You know, like we're supposed to just be making absurd, silly statements that, that, that are just dumb and have no point. Um, and that's just not how satire works. And they know that. But it's, an, it's one of the arguments that they use to try to shut us down, along with, you know, the hate speech, the punching down and all of that nonsense. So you got uh, your account locked recently on Twitter, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first thing I want to say mm-hmm. is, so you took over in 2018. Obviously, the 2020 election was massive for you guys. When was the first time that you felt, hey, we're having a significant influence, at least in the online discourse, and we've got a lot of fans out there? Was there a moment in time or somebody that responded and you thought, oh, wow, we're really having an impact? Do you recall having a moment like that? Uh, when we started to get a lot of media attention, um, I think that was one thing, you know, that was one of the unexpected things that I never really thought I would be doing is like going on, uh, you know, Shannon Bream and Tucker Carlson and whatever, and talking about, about being fact checked and being labeled hate speech and all these things, you know, the media attention was one thing, uh, where it was clear that, that people were paying attention to us and what was happening to us and how we were being characterized or mischaracterized. Um, but then there was also the stuff like, uh, congressmen and women, uh, the president of the United States, uh, retweeting our stuff, engaging with it, you know, from Ted Cruz to Donald Trump or whoever it is, Elon Musk, um, with, with people with massive audiences, uh, you know, sharing our stuff. It was clear that we were starting to kind of break out beyond where we were, where we started out as this kind of like niche Christian community site that was reaching, you know, doing a lot of like church humor and jokes about worship pastors, skinny jeans and stuff like that. Um, going beyond that, actually reaching a broader community and the culture at large and being engaged in this much broader discussion. Um, I think, it, I, I think some of those things were kind of obviously the, the telling factors that we were, and, and I'm obviously, you know, our, our traffic was exploding and our audience was growing really quickly too. So it was bearing out in the metrics as well. What what's the best month you've ever had in the history of the Babylon Bee? Uh, honestly, I, well, it which, depends on which metric you look at. Uh, if you want to go strictly on revenue, March of 2022. March of 2022, because of the Twitter attention and banning or locking of your account, I probably should say, that also then drove a lot of people probably to want to spend money with you, right? So... They come on, they sign up for your platform because they want to support what you're doing and basically stick up a middle finger or a thumb in the eye, however you want to convey that, towards the big tech companies for what they're doing to you, right? Yes, we get we get a lot of support and we ask for it. You know, it's it's a situation where it's a very it's a very real threat to the business. These these big tech companies and uh, and their you know their heavy handed censorship. Um, and their uneven enforcement of their of their policies and their and their biased policies themselves that have their own ideology baked into it so that you have to agree with their ideology in order to even be compliant with their policies. Um, you know, that's that that puts us in a position where when when something like this happens, you know, we have to appeal to our audience and say, hey, look, we need your support. So 
um, yeah, we know, we will have these spikes in growth, uh, punctuated spikes in growth that, that go along with some of these attacks on, on the site. And it's a very fortunate thing that we get that. We get a response. You know, we have an audience that really loves us, that really values the content that we're putting out there. They don't want to see us go away because Facebook and Twitter decide that we're too dangerous or too hateful uh, for you to see our content. Um, so we're really thankful to our audience, our readers, our, our subscribers, our listeners who uh, who have propped us up and have decided that they're going to come alongside us and make sure that we stick around uh, no matter who tries to shut us up. What's the most successful headline that you guys have ever had? Do you know? Uh, most successful in terms of shares. There's a couple that come to mind. There's one about how a motorcyclist identifies as a bicyclist and set a world record. Um, <laughs> that one did like... <laughs> Probably That's like pretty good. Six, to six or seven million shares, something like that. Um, there's been a few that just attracted a ton of media attention, like some silly ones. Like it's not the best headline ever, but we did. We we wrote a joke about how CNN had purchased an industrial sized washing machine to spin the news in before publishing it, and it's just a silly joke. It's like ridiculous. It's not believable or anything, but it got fact checked and rated false by Snopes, and so we ended up getting all this media attention because. Because we're like fighting for our lives to stay on Facebook because Snopes is rating our jokes false. Um, so you know, there's it depends on how you how you want to try to judge it in terms of like how monumental was it in our history. You know, there's a few that really stand out that weren't necessarily our funniest or most shared headlines. So okay, let's go into what happens with Twitter. Had you had the Babylon Bee account locked before? Uh, what were de- what's your deal? And by the way, people may be listening to this. Uh, months from now, years from now, even uh, we're talking in early April of 2022. Right now, the Babylon B account is locked because you won't take down a tweet, which I'll get to in a sec. But had your account mm-hmm. been locked before this occurred? There was one time when our account got suspended, like entirely suspended. Um, what was it suspended and, for? Well, a mistake, of course, right? It's always a mistake. Um we were suspended, um, and and we asked Twitter why, um, and because we didn't even get an answer. Just one day, we woke up and the account was suspended. Um, and their explanation—they actually did apologize and reinstate the account a couple days later after we got a ton of media attention going out there talking about how Twitter had just suspended us for no apparent reason. Um, and, and it was like it was a mistake. They said there was some spam. Uh, crackdown that they were doing and our account got flagged as being like a bot or something like that and was taken down by in error. So but that was the only time that we ever really got fully suspended and they apologized, said it was an error and we got back on. But they, they only did that after we made a ton of noise in the media and we were going all over talking on, on news shows and whoever would have us to talk about how Twitter had just suspended us out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden they're sorry and they made a mistake. And now you out of your account right now, what has, what occurred, what has happened, and what is the future as you know it right now likely to look like? For people who don't know, the Babylon B account was suspended and or locked, however you want to classify it, for tweeting out mm-hmm. what? So there was, a, there was a, uh, an article published in USA Today naming uh, Rachel Levine, a transgender uh, health uh, department official, um, naming Rachel Levine one of their Women of the Year. They had nominated several uh, women for Women of the Year, and Rachel Levine was named as one of them. Um, and, you know, we we did a parody version of that where we named Rachel Levine as the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee picked Rachel Levine as our pick for Man of the Year. 
So it was us like pushing back on this idea that Rachel Levine is really a woman. And uh, that runs afoul of Twitter's yep. hateful conduct policy because it, in- it involves misgendering, according to them. Now, we disagree that it involves misgendering. I think it's misgendering when you call Rachel Levine a woman. Um, but they think it's misgendering the other way. And so they have this policy, this hateful conduct policy that has their, their progressive gender ideology baked into it. Uh, and they want us to delete the tweet and affirm that we did violate this policy and, and that we did engage in hateful conduct. And unless and until we do that, we can't unlock the account. And to me, it's just crazy. It's like, okay, if you don't want this content on your platform, you can take it down if you want to. Delete it. Delete our tweet for us. You have that power. You have that right. Um, take it down and tell us that you think we engage in hateful conduct, but don't make us delete it and admit that we engage in hateful conduct when we don't think that we did. So there, it's basically they're putting a situation where they want us to bend the knee, kiss the ring, whatever, and we're like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We disagree that this is hateful conduct in the first place. You know, we disagree with the ideology that you've baked into your terms of service. So, you know, it's uh, one of these situations where we're just at this stalemate. Now. So how we're does this resolve do itself then? Yeah, you're at a, you're at a, yeah, that's exactly right. You're at a standoff. So how does this right. resolve itself in your opinion? And does Elon Musk, having bought 9.2% of Twitter, does that have any impact in the way that they adjust their editorial standards? Like, what do you anticipate might happen right now going forward? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't expecting that there might be a possible uh, solution to this that involves someone like Elon Musk getting involved. You know, initially, my whole thinking was, you know, one day uh, Congress is going to have to deal with this problem. The courts are going to have to deal with this problem. There's been so much talk about Section 230 and the rights that these companies have versus the rights of the people to speak and, and, and be heard. And where do, you, where do you draw these lines and how do we work all this out? Well, it, something's got to be done here because, as, as Musk noted himself on Twitter before this was all announced, he was saying, you know, Twitter is like the de facto town square at this point. This is where the vast majority of public discourse happens. It's the vast majority of discourse between private citizens, but also between government officials and private citizens. And so... You know, when you have platforms like that uh, cracking down hard on certain views and certain people uh, and allowing all kinds of other misinformation and hate speech to be, you know, proliferate and, and be pervasive on a platform that is that they approve of, you end up with a really unbalanced uh, situation that's not good for discourse and it's not good for democracy. It's not good for society. Musk cares about that very deeply. I love that he cares about that deeply. You know, he really does want to preserve freedom and make sure that, that Twitter remains a free a platform for free expression, which, by the way, they have a ringing tribute to in their terms of service. Their mission statement is that they're all about free expression and representing a diverse range of perspectives on their platform. Um, but, you know, what they give with one hand, they take away with the other by having these policies that, that have their ideology baked into it, and you have to conform with it or else you can't be on the platform. So I always expected that there would hopefully one day uh, be some solution that either comes from the courts or from Congress to deal with this problem, or maybe even like at, at the state level, some of these laws at the state level are being passed to prevent these companies from engaging in viewpoint discrimination. You know, maybe maybe the answer is we make uh, we 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 amend the Civil Rights Act to say that political belief is a protected class, and you can't discriminate on that basis. You know, because you can't discriminate based on race or gender or religion or whatever. Why not make political belief one of those things that's protected? Or maybe we just make it unlawful for these companies because they're so large. 
You know, if you have more than 50 million daily active users, you can't engage in viewpoint discrimination. You know, maybe those are the answers. I don't know. But Musk getting involved is very interesting because his commitment is to free speech. And he seems to be wanting to get influential by getting on the board. I have no idea what that will actually result in down the road or whether or not he'll be able to exert any influence over them. I know that they're going to be very resistant internally at that company. I mean, you can see it already. You've seen some of the reaction to his uh, appointment to the board. So I, I'm really fascinated. This is you know me putting on my lawyer hat and analyzing this. Have you thought about filing a lawsuit? One question. And second part of that question, you can clearly show damages. Because I know, based on the uh, the impact that that has had on OutKick's business, when suddenly you aren't able to share headlines and articles from the Babylon Bee, I'm sure that your website traffic goes down, which creates a mm-hmm. substantial impact on your overall revenue. Now, you mentioned people right. can respond to that by going to Babylon Bee and spending money that they might not have mm-hmm. spent otherwise to support your fight. But over time the impact of Twitter, I imagine, on your traffic was substantial. Have you thought about a lawsuit yeah. and what kind of damages from a traffic perspective, which leads to dollars, are you seeing in your business? I'd say it goes beyond traffic, too. I mean, when you talk about the damage of being removed from from public discourse, I mean, just being sidelined from the conversation. Yeah, good point. If you want... If you want your brand to be relevant, if you, you know, like when we're out there, we're, we're talking about Elon Musk, you know, Elon Musk interacts with our content on a regular basis. So there's lots of people with very large followings who interact with our content, who share it, who talk about it. If we're sidelined and removed from that conversation, we become less and less relevant every day. Um, you almost become forgotten when you're not in, out there where the conversation is happening. So there's, there's a cost that's yes. not even like monetary that you can't quantify. It's very difficult to quantify. Um, but then, yes, again, the, the, the traffic that you lose, um, over the course of time, all the media attention and the, and the people signing up and subscribing and getting really fired up, that lasts for a matter of days. And then it subsides and it goes away and life goes back to normal. People get mad about other things and get worked up about other things and stop thinking about you. And the traffic is still gone. The problem still remains. You're still off the platform. And so long term, you're right. It does, it does have an, an effect in terms of like an actual lawsuit, like what you would sue them for. That's very difficult. You know, there have been suits that there have been challenges that have been brought that try to argue that, you know, these companies, uh, you know, are, for example, um, uh, the modern public square um, and that you have a right to be there and whatever. And some of these uh, legal efforts that people have launched against them have failed spectacularly in the courts. Um, and, you know, there's been some com- a lot of commentary on that. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, on the Supreme Court weighed in recently um, to talk about how um, the Section 230 immunity that these companies have been have been given by the lower courts, where these, it's been interpreted so extravagantly to basically they can moderate however they want to, and and whether the intention was really for them to be able to do that um, is in question. And maybe there is an answer to that by applying like common carrier doctrine, you know, where they're based these companies these they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. These these big tech companies they want to be they want to be able to. Um, uh, basically have complete immunity for what's on their platform by saying, we're just a conduit. We're just a conduit. We're not responsible for whatever's said here. But then when there's a message that they don't like, they say, oh, we don't want to be the speaker of that message. We, want to t- we, don't want your- we don't want that to be our voice. Well, it's not your voice. You're just a conduit. It's not your speech. Are you the speaker or aren't you the speaker? You know, If you treat them like common carriers and apply that kind of regulatory uh, you know, restrictions on them that common carriers have, 
there's there's precedent for that happening without it being a First Amendment issue where these companies don't have speech rights anymore. You know, they can still say whatever they want. There's just limits on how much they can restrict other people's right to say what they want because they're just conduits for other people's information and, and, and speech. So there's an interesting conversation to be had there. I think that before we could actually bring an action, the law would need to be changed to be more favorable to us. Or, you know, the courts are going to have to weigh in on us and say up to this point, it's been they've gotten it wrong. It's been interpreted incorrectly. Seth, what do you wish? Last couple of questions for you here. What do you wish you had known about the media business that you know now that you didn't know when you started? Because this is wins and losses. We talk with a large audience out there about the wins and losses of everyday life. It can be in sports. It can be Mm -hmm. in politics. It can be in business. What do you wish you had known that you didn't know about the media business? What do you wish you maybe had changed uh, as everybody who runs a business learns and makes mistakes along the way? What would you say to people out there listening in that respect? Such a good question. Um, I haven't had time to give that a lot of thought, but I mean, just off the top of my head, uh, you know, I didn't know going into all this, and maybe it's just the type of site that we're running, you know, like on the one hand, it's like we're making jokes. We're trying to make people laugh, you know, but at the same time, we're also trying to make them think. And I, I think it's, I didn't know how rewarding it would be to be out there with a voice in the, in the, in the public, in the conversation where, you know, you're dealing with really important issues and there's really bad ideas out there. And in some cases, you know, some of the, when you have somebody that's when you have people who have abandoned reason altogether and they're irrational on purpose, arguing with them is not very effective because you're using reason and they've abandoned reason. So the best thing that you can do is to mock and ridicule them. And that's what the Babylon Bee does. And I had I had no idea how rewarding, it, how mission based it would be to go beyond just simply running a media company that's focused on like making money to being running a media company, media company that's speaking truth to culture, ridiculing bad ideas, which I think is a moral good. Um, and and trying to preserve freedom and restore sanity in an age where both are under assault every day in like crazy ridiculous ways, and so just being on the front lines of that battle and fighting back against the censorship and the effort to you know shove ideology and uh, down our throats that 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 we don't want, um, and the effort to silence and suppress our voices, being involved in that is extremely rewarding, uh, far beyond you know whatever whatever financial reward there is in, in running a popular media company that's you know gener- gets got a lot of eyeballs and is generating a lot of traffic. Um, so I didn't know that. I didn't know what I was getting into with that. But with that also comes the weight of a lot of responsibility. You know, everything you say is scrutinized. Everything you do is scrutinized. Um, but you know, it, we're very fortunate to have a ton of support, a lot of people in our corner. And I think we're fighting a fight that's worth fighting. So it doesn't have to just be about the business. For me, what I learned is it's this goes way beyond business. You know, there's a lot of things here that are really of value and that are rewarding in being involved, uh, you know, in these discussions. The right is used to being attacked and ridiculed and mocked. The left is not. That makes that a very fertile area to be able to puncture that, that, that sort of illusion. And what I have found is disagreement doesn't really bother people on the far left wing ridicule uh and satire and humor really genuinely bother them in a way that disagreement does not um why do you think and and I'm, i'm just curious big picture for you you're around the same age as me we grew up when david letterman or jay leno or whoever conan o'brien 
they tended to take mm-hmm. even-handed shots, whether it was Bill Clinton got made fun of like crazy, right? I mean, he obviously left a lot of uh, a lot of material out there, but so did George W. Bush, and it felt fairly even-handed. And now, basically, in the wake of the Colbert Report becoming a default, you know, uh, news uh, news show that now is in humor, and then you've got Saturday Night Live. They started to all pull their punches on the left wing, and certainly, I think it had started to happen before Trump. But Trump put it on steroids. Why do you think yeah. that is, and and how much? opening do they leave for you because there's almost nobody else out there throwing these kind of humor and satire punches i think there's a lot of desire on the right um amongst conservatives uh, oftentimes uh, very very oftentimes in like the christian community that that i've been a part of in in my early life and in adult life you know this this desire to be at peace and to uh, play nice and try to get along and, you know, reach across the aisle and find common ground and all of those things. There's, there's a lot of desire to, to do that. Um, there's a lot of desire to avoid, um, the contentiousness of, of being really confrontational or engaging in those fights. And I think that, you know, it's, it's tricky too. When you, when you start talking about ridicule and mockery, those things sound very negative. They sound like, like personal attacks, right? And uh, what I think that the B does very effectively, and, and what I, when, I, when I summarize our, our mission statement, if we have one, we don't technically have one, but when I summarize what we're trying to do is we're trying to, we're trying to make people laugh, but also think, but in, in that process, we're trying to ridicule bad ideas, you know, ridicule bad ideas. And that's, it's the ideas themselves that are the target. It's the ideas that are harmful. It's the ideas that you need to mock and tear down and make fun of before young people start to think they're good ideas and grow up thinking they're great ideas and put them into policy and into practice and then society as a whole suffers for it. Uh, and so I think there's a, there's a moral necessity to ridiculing and mocking um, bad ideas. And, and if, you know, if people can understand that, that it's actually a good thing, then maybe they'd be more emboldened to do it without feeling bad about it, like they're doing something wrong. You're not doing anything wrong by ridiculing and mocking bad ideas. You're helping people um, and you're standing up for the truth. Um, and you're cutting through all the noise and, and pushing back on the insanity. But like I said, that's one of the only ways you can even deal with insanity. When people have abandoned rationality, it's not like you can just have a conversation with them and reason with them because they've abandoned reason. So ridicule and mockery are really your only choice, and they're the most effective in that in that context. So um, I think you know I, I think that there's a lot of fertile ground. There's a lot of opportunity for people to come in and make the jokes that you're not supposed to make and do these kinds of things. Because look, the left has given this up. They were so good at comedy and they were so good at ridicule. Right now, comedians are being so careful. The comedians on the left, you watch these late night shows, they're going for applause, not amusement. They want the crowd to affirm them and clap for them rather than laugh. Like they're not even really concerned with getting laughs. They're just preaching and the the choir is applauding them. And it's crazy to see that happening because comedians, satirists, humorists, our job is to poke holes in the popular narrative, not promote it, not push it on everyone. And when comedians have started to go this direction of trying to promote it so that, you know, they're getting virtue points while they're up there preaching instead of actually doing comedy and making people laugh, you know, comedy by its nature is offensive. It's not a safe space being at a comedy show. You're going to get made fun of. There's going to be things that are uncomfortable and they make you squirm. And that's good. It's confronting us with uncomfortable truths. And that's how you grow. That's how you become more resilient. And so I think that anybody who goes in there and who's willing to, like, make the jokes that you're not supposed to make anymore and push back on that stuff. They're going to try to silence them. But look what happened with Dave Chappelle. Look what's happening with Joe Rogan. These guys aren't losing. 
You know, we're not losing right now. I think all of us are winning. The effort to silence us is only amplifying our voices. Last question for you. Have there been comedians who are known or thought to be left-wing that have interacted with the Babylon Bee, have come along and said, you know what, you guys are pretty funny, that have surprised you? It kind of builds out of what you were just saying. Comedy that is designed to uh, to uplift people in positions of power is propaganda. <laughs> it's not right, actually right. comedy. Um, have exactly. you seen and received positive feedback from people that might have been perceived to be of a different political bent just because the great thing about comedy is it should work no matter what your political beliefs are if you have to sit around and think hey is this funny for a women's studies professor at Amherst well that's not exactly the uh you know the the faculty lounge there that's the exact (laughs) absence of comedy comedy is reacting immediately and instantaneously smiling before you have time to think about the underlying, uh, you know, root causes of the humor itself. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I, I kind of reject this idea that there's like, there, there sh- we should think in terms of like right wing comedians and left wing comedians. Right. If you're a right wing, if you're a strictly right wing comedian who's like pushing a narrative yourself, you know, th- then you're you're not doing it right either. Um, I, I think that there should be, you know, you, you should be joking about whatever deserves. The mockery, joking about whatever deserves to be joked about. And that that involves examining your own side, your own motives and inclinations, your own practices, your own hypocrisy. We try to do that ourselves quite a bit. Um, But in terms of like somebody from the left, like coming alongside us and saying, hey, you know, I really appreciate I can't think of a single example of that happening. Like somebody like uh, who who comes who had just has a totally different worldview than us. There may be a couple, but nothing that really jumps to mind. I, I can think of like some comedians like. Uh, Bill Maher, uh, for example, who I disagree with on many, many, many things, but who thinks um, who thinks cancel culture is uh, problematic. He thinks uh, the woke stuff has gone crazy and over the top and is insane. Um, he thinks that speech suppression is bad and that you shouldn't be trying to silence people who disagree with you. Um, you know, he's he's more of like an old school liberal that way. And has, very, has been very vocal about those things. And I, I respect that, that even though I disagree with him on a lot of things, he's, he gets that and, and understands that, you know, comedy is about, um, you know, sometimes making, making you a little bit uncomfortable, making you squirm a little bit. It's not just about, you know, reaffirming you and, and not stepping on anybody's toes. Um, and anybody who does should be silenced. Outstanding stuff. He is Seth Dillon with the Babylon Bee. Encourage you to follow Seth online while you still can. Hopefully the Babylon Bee will be back on Twitter in the meantime. Uh, And people can obviously go to your website and see all the content that you guys are putting up on a day-to-day basis. I know you've been crazy busy. I appreciate the time. What else do you want people to know that I didn't give you an opportunity to tell them to close out here? I don't know. I mean, when people, people ask for how they can support us, and I tell them there's a couple of ways. And the first one is not like by sending us money. The first one is be a bold defender of the truth. When, when, when Twitter, when Facebook, when YouTube, when whoever it is tries to get you to say that two and two make five, tell them no, two and two make four. And I'm not budging on that. Insist on recognizing reality for what it is. Speak the truth boldly, even if it means, even if it means you pay a penalty for it. You know, like I said before, like from the stage at these events, I'm talking about this stuff. I'm like, before this ever happened, by the way, before we ever got banned on Twitter, I'm like, the greatest achievement on Twitter is not going viral or getting verified. It's getting banned for saying something true. 
You know, pay, paying, a, paying a price for the truth is an achievement. There are people who've been willing to lay down their lives for, for freedom and for the truth, and we're not willing to give up our Twitter accounts. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal what's at stake right now. And so the best way to, way to support us is for us to rally together. We should all be telling the truth boldly and not backing down on that. And eventually things will swing back in our direction. They're going to have to make changes. They can't ban millions of us, tens of millions of us, or they will ban themselves into irrelevance. So make them do that. But beyond that, yeah, go to our website and subscribe. That helps too. He's Seth Dillon. I'm Clay Travis. This has been Wins and Losses. Subscribe to this as well. 45 long-form interviews. I think you will love them. If this is your first, thanks for checking them out. Go check out more in the past, and we'll be back sooner rather than later. This has been Wins and Losses. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.